I didn't realize that you started recording, but I guess we were do- we were doing shtick, so I guess I should have put that together. <laughs> Did you think I was just saying good afternoon to you? No, I didn't think that, Quincy, but okay. <laughs> I'm loving your energy today, Kevin. This is chaos. Did you end up hiking today? <laughs> do I seem like <laughs> I ended up hiking today? My name's Quincy. My name's Kevin. And this is Sentimental Men. But keep your thumb away from that skip button. We're here to talk. And maybe scream. About our favorite women in musical theater. No, I did not end up hiking today, Quincy. What did you do so far today? Today, I have just been running a bunch of errands, but yesterday I drove out to this beach that's like an hour, hour and a half away from where I live. And then I went to go take photos on like a rocky... Listeners, I'm still in Hawaii right now, although I am returning to New York in a couple of weeks, but for the time being, I'm still in Hawaii. So anyways, I'm on these rocks... I'm walking, posing for a picture, and then I lost my footing a little bit. And I was like, oh, this is going to end poorly. Like, I thought I was going to, like, crack my head open, break my arm. Like, I, it was, I was preparing for that. And then I slipped and fell and luckily landed, like, on my back, but in, like, a smooth area of the rock. But then I got up and was walking on the sand and realized that my foot was on fire and I have a gnarly gash on the bottom of my foot. But I got an Instagram out of it, so it's fine. So it's all good. Um, and as you mentioned, you are headed back to the city... And things are looking up. <laughs> things are looking up. I literally was thinking, I was like, so if I wanted Kevin to come to my apartment, would he take a bus? I would just walk over. It's going to be cold. I don't care. I like the numbness, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, guys, normally we, fil- we film, we record these little intro things genuinely right before our guest arrives. But this is a little different because we've already done our interview with our guests and we're reconvening to give you a little intro. I'm super excited to have this person on as a guest because, well, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he is our first fellow sentimental man that we will have on the pod, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of exciting. But I also am very excited because he is one of these people who is just kind of universally beloved on gay Twitter. Even when I I told you, I was like, oh, my friend James would probably come on. You're like, oh, James Kennedy. No. I don't remember how he came into my life, but he's in it now and I, I couldn't be happier. And uh, if if I had to pick one person who loves Wicked more than me, it would probably be him. You guys are in for a real treat. This episode was so much fun. And I feel like we talked about some really interesting things about, well, I guess for context, James is a composer. So we thought it'd be really fun to have him on to discuss the Wicked score. And we just like shot the shit about Wicked and I had so much fun. Yeah, I had fun too. I think it it was nice because we have been doing a lot of talking to women who have played the role. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we've had to take a very scholarly approach to our conversations. And so it was nice to just spend an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was, uh, just kind of fangirling with yeah. with somebody. Yeah, I feel like we really got to geek out, which we haven't, which is funny because we're like doing a Wicked podcast. So obviously this is geeking out. But I feel like with the Alpha Buzz, we can't really geek out as much. Correct. We have to behave ourselves a little bit. So yeah, here's uh, let's get into our episode of James. Yeah, get into it. Are you missing the thrills and drama of Broadway? 
Well, Resident Dramatics and twin brothers Connor and Dylan McDowell are bringing you all that and more on their podcast, Drama. Joined weekly by thrilling special guests, they explore theater, entertainment, pop culture, and the vibrance of love and life in New York City. With new episodes every Wednesday, listen in for your weekly dose of drama. Plus, Sentimental Men listeners are in for a huge treat as they've had some of your favorite alphabas, Glindas, Fieros, and even Anessa Rose or two on the pod. Follow them at The Drama Podcast and subscribe wherever your podcasts are found. Drama. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining us today, James. This is going to be so fun. Oh my God, thank you for having me. I have told so many friends about this. So good. Yeah, good. I told Kevin, like my musical theater trivia team's name is the Green Girl Sisterhood. Like we oh are deep in. So to begin, James, mm. why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your wicked journey in life? Oh my goodness. So... I am a composer and playwright, and my wicked journey began. Okay, so the 2004 Tony Awards were like the first ever Tony Awards that I ever watched. And like, I didn't even know anything about the shows, which, like, especially when you consider how heated the 2004 Tony Awards were in hindsight, the fact that I was just like, what's this is like how innocent I was. But that was really when I was like freshly like becoming a, a young musical theater queen. Yeah. And I was like, oh, there's like a lot of great stuff happening on this stage, particularly the <laughs> Wicked performance. <laughs> and then at the same time, my dad had a friend who like worked in TV production in my hometown. And so he would gather all these like industry magazines about like production design and whatever. And at the time, one of them had done a giant spread about the Wicked production design Mm -hmm. and so he was like your gay son likes theater like why don't you take these old magazines home to him so i remember like getting this spread um that had like just photos of the production design and i was like okay this is there's something like really really fabulous about this and then um Shout out to my friend Brandon Lawler, who literally just burned me a copy of the original Broadway cast album. And I remember listening to it for the first time because I put it in my little boombox, like up in my room. Of course. But like from that moment on, like it, that was it. Like I was just completely enamored, completely a rapture. And the other thing is, like at the time, it was impossible to see it. Right, like the tours hadn't gone out yet. Like and where did you grow up? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Right, right, right. So the tour didn't come there until like 2008, I think, because they were doing sit downs. And then I remember um, I came to Atlanta. It was like the closest big city. And a lot of friends drove down to Atlanta to see it. Mm-hmm. But that was back when like people were still waiting in line for tour tickets, like the day that they were released. Like it was because Wicked is so ubiquitous now. But at the time, like I was very aware that I wasn't going to have access to that for a while. Like I was sure. like, this was also pre-YouTube. Like mm-hmm. You were telling us, James, that you got the Grimmery for Christmas. I got the Grimmery for Christmas too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for years, like that was literally the only access to it. Like I remember finding a full plot. Cause it was also before Wikipedia. So I remember finding a full plot description, like on some mm-hmm. chat room somewhere that sort yeah. of was like spoilers for the ending. Cause like, I just had no idea. And then of course, like once I, I finally for a Christmas gift, um, 
in eighth grade, got tickets to New York. We did like a family trip to New York, got to see it. And then by that time, like the tour started like not being impossible to go to. And then of course, once I moved to New York, I've seen it a couple times since then. But it's really funny to me now just to think about how inaccessible it was for so long. Like there were no bootleg videos. Like I remember, you know, one of the first like videos that we really had access to on YouTube was Kristen Chenoweth's final popular. Like that was like yes. one of the... Yeah, I was literally talking about that video with Quincy like two days ago. Obviously. Because that, it took until like Shoshana was the principal before yes. we started getting like videos which yeah. Quincy, you were you were three when that was, I was happening gonna say, so. it's like, <laughs> to hear you guys like talk about that era is very interesting because i think i came into my wickedness when like youtube was a thing bootlegs were a thing yeah. i could see the, it the was tour just, like the first two or three years were just kind of like oh yeah like i hear there's a new alphabet i hope she's good yeah and then like once once it became more common then those earlier videos kind of started popping up so when it first opened because it got mixed reviews when it opened but was it like a hit still Oh yeah. I mean, it was like, it was like trying to get tickets to Hamilton. Well, maybe not like that, but it was like that caliber of like, it extended beyond the Broadway community. Like the fact that like my aunts and uncles knew what it was. I mean, like as crazy as that season was, like it was the runaway hit because like Avenue Q was so adult and like sort of Mm -hmm. like for people who didn't really like musicals, like that was like what you would go and see. And then like, Mm -hmm. you know, Carolina Change was much beloved, like within the theater community, but it never had any sort of like national attention on it. It It's artistic. Right. But like Wicked was the thing of like, that everyone who saw the Tony Award performance started seeing other press clips was like, oh, this is the show. It was sort of like the Disney thing without the Disney name. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It was very much like, oh, you want a Broadway musical? This is a Broadway musical. Yeah. It was very easy to package as... And and I mean, we're two decades later and it's still like the first show that every tourist goes to go see. And I think because they then did so many other sit-down productions. Like, they're like, we're going to do an open-ended Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Like, they sort of up their own press about it of like, no, yeah. this is a show that has legs. This is a show that's going to be around for a really long time. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So then when you saw it in 2008, who was your... I saw it in 2006. Six, and it went, no, yeah, so okay. Who have you seen as Alphaba? Run us through. Um, so my... I was very, very lucky. The first... Um, the first time I ever saw it was Eden Espinosa and Megan Helsey. So just, you know. Solid combo. Blast. Then I saw it on tour in Charlotte. And I really had a crisis a few weeks ago because I was talking with friends who were trying to remember all the alphabets that we had seen. And I was like, who did I see on tour the first time? Because the tickets were a gift for my parents, but they were like, all we could afford was like way, way, way back balcony. So I have right. zero like visual memory. Sure. So then I was like doing some Googling and like trying to find reviews from the time. And it, I saw um, Carmen Cusack oh. and Katie Rose Clark, which was like such a like... Ooh, that's rare. The fact that I wasn't aware at the time, like yeah. what I was seeing, like I remember loving it, but I was also like you know, in 10th grade. So I wasn't yeah. like chasing yeah. alphabets the way that like you chase alphabets now. <laughs> so I saw them and then I saw Vicky Noon on tour in Charlotte yeah. as well. And then um, a couple years ago, I was living in Louisville, Kentucky for a year for work. And we went to see, the tour came through, we went to see it and it was Alyssa Fox who was alphabet. Mm, yeah. She was great. Um, 
And then I've seen it twice on Broadway since moving to the city. I saw Caroline Bowman, who I loved her performance a lot. And then the last time I saw it, I saw Jenny DeNoya. Uh, mm. My favorite thing about Jenny DeNoya is like, she gives you a note perfect performance of that role. Like, mm-hmm. she's like, I'm going to do it as written, like, trust the material. I'm going to execute it flawlessly. And I'm not trying to like psychoanalyze her, but I feel like from when I saw her and like what I have seen of other clips of her, like she really does just flawlessly execute the material that's on the page. And I, I think yeah. that that, you know, in an age of riff compilations and all of those things on YouTube, I'm like, oh, it's it's so wonderful to just like see it done as it is meant to be done. Yeah. And she's been doing it for so long too. Oh yeah. She's like, yeah. like stand back and let me just like do that. I'm like happily, um, yeah. So those are those, that's my my Alphabet constellation. I feel like of the what a I resume of Alphabas. That yeah. is so yeah. Cool. I, I feel very lucky. The fact that I saw Carmen like didn't know it is one of those things that I wish I could like scold my younger self. Yeah. I know, I say now though that you saw a pre Bright Star Carmen Cusack as Alphabet, it was oh, yeah. great. <laughs> pre like um, South Pacific tour, like pre like all of you know pre everything, all of the things that she's now become known for. Yeah. Okay, Kevin and I do a segment called Stuck on SJB where we gush over something that our favorite woman has done. Yes. This is Stuck on J Block. We thought it'd be fun to do it with you. <laughs> It's okay if you, because this is a little on the spot, but do you have a favorite Stephanie J. Block moment? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> is it ready? <laughs> okay, so one of my favorite things that an alphabet can do in the number defying gravity, when it gets to the end of the song and it's the, like, and nobody in all of Oz, when alphabet, like, plunges into vulnerability in that moment, mm. I think of all the possible choices, it's probably my favorite. Of, like, some of them are, like, really forceful and determined in that moment. Like, some mm-hmm. of them are really sort of aggressive in that moment. But, like, a lot of, and especially, I think, the earlier performers who did the role, it's this sort of moment of, like, vulnerability and, and scaredness and, and, like, really sort of being overwhelmed by, like, the decisions in that moment. And I would bet money that Stephanie J. Block originated that choice. Because mm. she does it in almost all of the bootlegs that are available of her. And right. Adina doesn't really do that. Like Adina sort of like keeps right. the same momentum going that yeah. she's been doing through, you know, and so you don't match them we're not. Like she's like on the train to the end of the song. But Stephanie <laughs> like sort of gets overwhelmed by her own power and like the fact that she's going to have to do it all by herself and like there's no going back from this moment. And so... I like to think that somehow through all the workshops that she did and then the tour and then doing it on Broadway, like she sort of created the mold for that choice. Mm, and it's one of my favorite, yeah. you know, Julia Murney does it. Like there are other phenomenal alphabets who do it as well. But I, my like armchair understanding of the history <laughs> of that choice is that Stephanie J. Block introduced it to the world. Yeah. It's almost like a fearful, like you can see when the alphabet is scared when they're seeing that section yeah. of Defying Gravity. Yeah. I love that. And it's not like, you know, it's the only choice. Like obviously there's a lot of nuance that could happen there, sure. but I do think it's, it's always a favorite moment of levity in that song, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Every time she does it, like Rachel Tucker does it too. Mm-hmm. Like there are just so many... Mm-hmm. 
There's so many of my favorite albums do it, and so I think that's why I'm partial to it. But yeah. I, I think Stephanie was like, here's a moment where I can like act for you. Yeah. Now now that I'm like going through Stephanie J. Block's resume, my favorite pastime. That is my <laughs> favorite pastime. I think that's kind of a through line is because she does kind of play just because of the instrument that she has is she does kind of play these very like forward bombastic women. Mm-hmm. But in every instance, she finds those kind of reflective places mm-hmm. and they're always magical mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she is so lovely. Like she like, I don't know her, but, she gives the, <laughs> but like she gives the impression that she like leads with her heart. Yes. Like she is a very emotionally accessible person and Mm -hmm. so i love that she always kind of finds those like dreams and plans are in the making like Mm -hmm. those kind of moments of yeah Yeah. because even in the context of the character of judy burnley in nine to five get out and stay out is kind of a crazy song for her to be singing towards the end oh yeah uh god do you ever just think that dolly parton sat down to write a musical and wrote nine to five on her first try (laughs) i do i do Uh, James, that was a really great Stuck on SJB. That might yeah. be our most insightful Stuck on SJB yet. <laughs> Listen, I think if your next podcast is Stuck on SJB, you have a, like at least seven seasons worth of material. Why was that not the podcast, Kevin? That could be next season. We have a while to like, <laughs> go through the history. But I just think of like when you've played Elphaba, Liza, Reno Sweeney, Judy, Cher. Like, I just am like, what a... She is the gay icon. She, she is yeah. the moment now the moment for the future like oh james you know what i would love to get your take on oh please so we just talked to caroline bowman and she kind of alluded to this idea of sometimes when an actress plays alphaba it can define their entire career and some actresses mm-hmm. have been able to do the role and then get out of it and move on to have a career and some mm-hmm. alphabas are kind of like not stuck but like alphaba has become like what they're known for mm-hmm. i guess one do you agree and two, why do you think that is? If, if I were to make a wild guess as why that might be, mm-hmm. I think it's because aside from those of us who love Wicked, people don't go to see Wicked once they've seen it. You know what I mean? Mm. And so I feel like there are so many assumptions about what that role is and how it can be done that other creative people in the city, other writers, directors, whatever, are not turning to Wicked as like... A place to find people. Yeah, as a place to sort of see like who are some of these... It's not the launching pad that I think it may have been That's right true. away. Um, I, I imagine that people assume that it's a role that you can't really make your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's such... Like to play that role is, is such a feat of accomplishment. I think no matter who you are, like to be able to do that eight shows a week for nine months or whatever, a, you know, a typical yeah. alpha contract is. And it's also, I mean, I think like... So many of the earlier women who played it, like Alpha was not their launching point into the mm-hmm. industry. Like, you know, Eden had already done Brooklyn. You know, Shoshana has been on every demo of every new musical that's like ever yeah. been written. You know, Adina obviously had a lot of clout. Stephanie had a lot of clout. And now it's sort of becoming like a lot of actors, I think, are making their Broadway debut I think, in yeah. that role. And so. I see the same thing when you become a part of these shows that are institutions, whether it's Aladdin or Phantom or, you know, 
I think it can be really hard to be seen as bringing something different and then also be seen beyond those roles. And it's kind of tricky because I'm sure for an actor's perspective, it's a steady paycheck to, oh. to go into one of those types of shows. Oh my God. Government, baby. <laughs> and like it's a guaranteed standing ovation eight times a week. Are you kidding? Like I would, in a heartbeat. I remember, Quincy, I don't know if you remember this. Kevin probably does. Like, back, <laughs> back in the early days when there were all these petitions to get Sutton Foster to replace as Alpha yeah. on Broadway, mm. it was like a huge thing. Everyone was like, Sutton should replace, Sutton should replace. Oh I was like, God. I, and I remember even having the wherewithal at the time where I was like, Sutton Foster is not going to be like the fourth Alphaba. Like, that's just not, it's not written in stars. I'm sorry. You know, it really used to be yeah. like you were looking at these name women who had followers and could belt and had credentials as carrying other musicals on their backs, basically. And was like, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I do remember that. All right, so James, you're a composer. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I try. So we thought it'd be fun to talk with you about the score of Wicked. Um, how do we want to do this? You have three favorite moments prepared and three maybe questionable moments prepared? Yeah, so I took some notes. You know, the Wicked score pumps through my veins. Like, there's so much that I love about it. And I wouldn't say that, like, worse, because I'm like, who am I, you know? But there are certain moments that I, like, raise an eyebrow to. So, like, I, I think we have to begin by talking about something bad, just, like, as a song. <laughs> Sorry. Here's my thing about something bad. It would be different if there were other moments in the show that had the same sort of energy and, like musical function but there aren't like they essentially like we're gonna take this conversation and just like set it to a rhythm and put some underscore underneath it in a minor key and like that's the song yeah there's just like not a lot of nuance happening in that moment like i mean it it exists to to build up to the joke right which is like fine is the joke the goat voice is that the joke yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) which like Right, because it's not like covering a costume change or a scene change. Right. Really. It's literally just happening. And so if it were like more of an autonomous moment for Dr. Dillamund, like that would be something. If there was a moment for them to like connect with each other, that would be something. But there's like not a lot of depth in that song. Yeah. It makes me wonder if at one point there was a more fleshed out Dillamund storyline other than he's saying something bad and then comes back in, like in well, a cage. I mean, one like used to end with his finale like um, in the original right, trial right. or his finale his funeral funeral was the word I was looking for not finale I mean the same thing because that song just like sticks out like a sore thumb I think it's like everyone's most skipped track on the cast album I also another moment in the score that I just have questions about is like the entire Wizomania sequence in one short day, which like plot-wise is fine. The costumes are fun. But my thing about it, I think that that section, like all the amazing momentum of one short day sort of comes to a halt in that moment. Uh, and like, because you have like, one short day has such a great groove to it. Like, you know, we love a ribbon dance. We love a giant bicycle. We love that ensemble who's on point the entire time. Like there's so 
much to delight in. And it's so fun. And then we immediately slow the tempo down. And then when they're doing the like two parts of the song on top of each other, but like in a slower mm. tempo, I'm just like, what happened to like the thrill of the song? Mm. That's been saved by the ensemblist, the wizard will see you now moment, like brings us back to it, which like, yeah. thank God. But that yeah. whole third of the song. When the giant puppets are out. Yeah, yeah. Are. And then it's like one short day. Yeah. And the and I'm like, we we had so much like great energy and bounce at the beginning of it, and now we're just like crawling our way through. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that's another part that I'm always like Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it has to be slow so it can then go into that moment that Glinda and Alphaba have. It's a great moment. Right. That's such a lovely scene of like, oh, you look positively emerald. Yeah. That it's almost like that section ex- has to exist to build us back up to the, because really that scene is what makes the energy plummet. Totally. But I think the thing is, and I'll give another example of this in a second, but like the thing that makes it more frustrating, most frustrating to me is like, there are so many other moments in the score that I think navigate that exact same challenge so much more successfully so Uh it's not just like you can't do it it's just like you didn't do it yeah because like so my thing with wicked right now is like i think of wicked as like your favorite disney world ride you know where like you just love it and so you're on board but also you're like this was made a while ago yeah. like whenever I see Wicked and like it starts with like the projection animation of like the witch melting and I'm like this was so impressive in 2003 <laughs> you know or the same thing like you know Lord knows I love a cherry picker moment at the end of Defying Gravity but I'm like Mary Poppins flew around the whole theater so I'm like, yeah. like this is no longer like yeah. the thrilling technological advancement that it was at the time and yeah. so when I think about these lyric moments I'm like oh I don't know if Stephen Schwartz ever thought that like 20 years down the line we would be like picking apart some of these choices sure. like we are <laughs> you know and so obviously in wizard and i proud of you is a moment that makes me sad on a word no father is not proud of you also held in such high esteem is another oh, moment that always yeah. sticks out to me because that's not how you say that word also when people hear me or when people see me they will scream like i'm like your skin yeah. is okay um i also you know in defying gravity to those who ground me take a message back from me mm-hmm. oh my god is a, a choice and then, you know, I just, the, the, another moment that just makes me sad is when she says, this question haunts and hurts too much to mention, and then mentions the question. I'm like, I don't believe you. You're lying to me. Like I said earlier, like the thing that I'm challenged by, and listen, like I have so many moments in my own writing that are like equally as question marks. Like we all, Mm -hmm. you know, Stephen Schwartz is a genius, but I think one of one of the things that just is challenging is like like the song Wonderful has the best scansion in the show. Yes. And the lyrics and rhymes in Wonderful are more interesting than anything else anywhere else yeah, yeah. in the show. Interesting. There are precious beauties with moral ambiguities. So I'm like, oh, you can yeah. do it. You can write something more interesting than to those who ground me, take a message back from me. Right. Because <laughs> you do it an hour later. Right. Those are the things that I'm like... I, I wish you were as intricate and, and honest and clever and like character specific in some of the alphabet songs that you are in the wizard song. He was like, she's belting high. They're not even paying attention yeah, to what she's saying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but like things, 
you know, my favorite moments in the score. Like, there are lots mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. I am just always completely blown away by everything that is accomplished by the song Dancing Through Life. I think from a craft perspective, it's brilliant. Mm, yeah. So much plot happens in those eight minutes. And really beautiful melodies. So many beautiful melodies. The individual sections of that song are so tightly written. The way that they mosaic together is extraordinary. The way that you're able to introduce the Bach and Nessa moment Fiero, you get Glinda into Madame Morrible's class, you have a dance break, Glinda and Alphabet are now friends, like so much happens. And it's a great song. I think Dancing Through Life has his most interesting melodies in the mm-hmm. entire score because he he's using the full spectrum of what's available to him. And I also think like on a very specific, very like nerdy note, under Nessa's melody, there is a flute solo that is gorgeous oh. in the orchestration. If you you never listen to specifically for what the flute is doing under um finally for this one night i'm about to have yeah. a fun it is like so stunningly beautiful to then go right into the moment with glinda and her girls about it's so hideous i don't hate anyone enough to give it to like and you get back into that percussive moment and then like adina speaking as fast as she possibly can and she's like oh no this mess and i'm talking about you stuff <laughs> like so much amazing stuff happens in dancing through like that dance break is amazing those costumes are stunning um glinda's like willful ignorance of the black and white theme for the party <laughs> iconic she's like i'm wearing pink stay mad <laughs> like it's it's incredible to me so like i just anytime i listen to dancing life or especially when i see it i just like my jaws on the floor of like what steven and winnie and like wayne and joe mantel i'm on first name basis with all of them clearly um just like <laughs> were able to pull off in that number because even technically like the sets flying in and out and the scene changing yeah yeah, yeah. It's, uh, like think of like where we are when fiero starts to sing versus like where we are in their bedroom at the end right. is like blows my mind we have talked before about dancing through life uh in the same conversation as like what you want from legally blonde yes I think the difference between between those two is that what you want, it's like off the bat, you're up tempo, you're already at the marching band from the beginning. But dancing through life, it kind of starts off with this like acoustic guitar, you know, I'm this cool like surfer guy in Oz. I have these white pants and then you kind of feel the... Yeah. There is a build to it that to your earlier point dips and rises without losing any momentum yes and it also involves more characters than what you want does because what you want is entirely about Elle and it's like all about like her progression centered around her yeah whereas Dancing Through Life has everybody so I just I I think that like his genius just like really shines through in that entire number and it's like a great song like it's not just like so much plot but I'm like you know so I love that I also love similarly um I love the end of thank goodness after when we get out of Glinda's solo into like everybody coming back in and like Mm. there's just so much goodness happening you know and then like a soprano moment which like I live for again another number that has a lot going on and is like constructed really really phenomenally so how do you feel about the bridges you crossed you didn't know you crossed until you crossed you know when i was 14 i thought that was the most profound sentiment (laughs) that a human being could have and so like i will always love it 
so deep. No one understands me except Glinda. <laughs> except Glinda. I'm sure I had like a history notebook with that like written on the front cover of it. Absolutely. And when you get like a Hilti who just like does it in one breath. Well, that's the thing is you never really know what you're going to get on that moment. Yeah, until it's there. Like you all mentioned in the pilot that like Quincy likes an alphabet with a risk factor. Like you're like, what? Are they going to stick the landing? And that's like yeah, a Glinda. Yeah. The fact that she, okay. And the way I like Glinda to be sung, the fact that she is like full belting bridges you've crossed, you didn't know you crossed uh, until you crossed. And then 90 seconds later yeah. is soprano coloratura uh-huh. into those touch notes. Are you like range? And Alphaba could never. And Alphaba truly could never. <laughs> Unless you're Louise Dearman, who's like, I'm going to play both. Sure, sure, sure. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I mean, like, I also, one of the things that I love about the score is like the songs tend to fall into like one of three categories, with the exception of like something bad and some of the like other like minor moments. It tends to either write these songs that groove, like Wizard and I, at like the beginning of One Short Day, and what is this feeling, especially like, what is this feeling? It's just like on the same rhythm. Um, the entire time and it's great for the fact that they're singing about one thing the entire song and there's like no nuance to any of the thoughts in those lyrics I'm like (laughs) at least it grooves or he writes these like really beautiful like simple contemplation songs like Not That Girl and For Good where he's just like I'm just gonna Mm. list my lyrics are just gonna be a list of similes about what friendship is or he writes these when we were just talking about these really intricate like mosaic-y songs that have a lot of different things going on. And I think it's a really interesting... Again, he's brilliant. So I assume a lot of this was like a conscious decision. But the fact that everything sort of falls into these different categories, I think is a really interesting way to understand a score. Mm-hmm. I also just think that like no one... I Stephen Schwartz has always been a very percussive writer, but I feel like that's something that's really missing from a lot of other contemporary scores is like the rhythms of what he plays with and like what sort of carries us from scene to scene are so mm-hmm. exciting. And, and so I just am always always in awe of that too. There's a lot of talk that Wicked is Stephen Schwartz's least cohesive score. Mm. I don't know if I necessarily agree. I mean, I probably do, but like, I think one of the things that Stephen Schwartz seems to be doing a lot in his later career is approaching his content externally as opposed to writing from within. And so I, I wonder if that is a part of it. Whereas like when you look at Pippin and Godspell, like so much of that is like of him, of that era. Mm. I think it's the different, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way because I think every writer writes many different kinds of things, but I think it's the difference between like having something to say versus like writing for the story that you're telling. And I think in a lot of his earlier stuff, he really had a lot to say as a composer, as an artist, you know, especially in Godspell and Pippin, like he was really sort of like infusing his perspective on the world and and on his content out there. Whereas I think Wicked was serving an external story. Um, And so I wonder if that's sort of the difference. I think that the orchestrations make Wicked very cohesive. You know, it's there's certainly a lot of fun stuff happening in the orchestration between like the percussion section and all that harp stuff that I love and all of those like string moments are great. 
that I don't think a Stephen Schwartz in his 20s and 30s could have written Wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think that comes with a lot of life experience. And I think it's also like he wrote Wicked in his post-Disney phase, like spending years collaborating with Alan Menken. That's interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. You're so smart. <laughs> oh, I just, so I, I have so much admiration for him. Like, I just, it, what he's able no, to it, do is so, and to do it, like, you know, I, I am a composer of a generation where, like, there's a lot out there that I can learn from and a lot of writers that I can learn from. And, and when you think about, like, Stephen Schwartz and Stephen Sondheim and Jerry Herman, like, there just weren't a lot of existing composers mm-hmm. to learn from as far as writing musicals. Right. You know, right. they had... Jerome Kern and Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and Irving Berlin. But like that was sort of the the pool. And now I am of an era of like there's Stephen Schwartz and Janine Tesori and like all these other people that I can sort of that have become masters of the craft. And so I just am so in awe of like what he was able to do. And also like writing Godspell and Pippin, like in your twenties, like what? Yeah. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, like, you, know, you know, we all love to talk about Andrew Lloyd Webber and justifiably so. But I'm like, the man also wrote Jesus Christ Superstar when he was 22 years old. So like, I will forever just like be in awe and like have, yeah. have endless amount, or, uh, admiration. Well, and even too, I mean, with Wicked, it's like we can. I think the fact that we are now getting to a place where we're like, well, this part of the score is a little weird and like this line's a little clunky just speaks to the fact that like he created something that has remained relevant for two decades. Like mm-hmm. no, no shade, but it's like, we're not having these conversations about the Avenue Q score. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like nobody, nobody is like still looking at that with a lens of relevance the way that like we are still looking at Wicked. Yeah. Like anything with longevity, we're going to pick apart at some right. point. When the it's... same way that I would be talking about the South Pacific score yeah. mm-hmm. is the way we're talking about Absolutely. it. Like well, the there are still moments like in Sweeney Todd that I'm like, what was this choice? You know, like every yeah, yeah, yeah. masterpiece is still going to have its moments that you are puzzled by or maybe don't love as much or you know whatever but i think the other thing is like they're masterpieces for a reason and they stick around for a reason and even if you know it could be argued that it's his least cohesive score he was tapped into something because people still want to see (laughs) it and want to hear it and it and it's also like what a phenomenal like first show for so many people wicked is their first show and i think it's an infinitely more interesting first musical than Beauty and the Beast, like no shade to Beauty and the Beast, but like... Yeah. And I think too, he also, he wrote a score that changed the way an entire generation of singers sing yeah and even going back to what you were saying before is it's like the pool of women who could tackle this role in 2003 were those six or seven women who kind of stayed with the show through its early years but now it's like we're getting into this generation of people our age who have been singing this score for for half of their life at this point so it's like yeah i can sing the wizard and i you need me to come in and sing it again (laughs) like yeah sure i'll pop in people learn to sing by singing this score. Yes, absolutely. Whereas like the Adinas and the Stephanie J's, they learn to sing, singing a completely different style of music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, good job, Stephen. Uh, this is so interesting, James. Thank you for sharing all that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for letting me ramble about something that I think about. Anyway. <laughs> no, thank you for indulging us. So let's do one round of what Kevin and I have just decided to call the Alpha Bowl. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, so we're going to pull a name from our alpha bowl and decide whether they're wizard and I define gravity or no good deed alpha book. And the name I've pulling, pulled. <laughs> oh my God. You know what? That sounds like a wicked lyric. The name I pull in. The name I pull in. You know what? You're right. The name I've pulled is Julia Murney. Oh my God. Uh, who I immediately have an answer, but I want to let James start first because he's a guest. I mean, Julia Murney is extraordinary from downbeat to encore of that show. <laughs> but. Encore. I think that Julia Murney is a wizard in eye alpha because if you are familiar with the videos of her performing the wizard in eye, and I am very intimately familiar with these videos, she minds every single acting beat in that song mm. in a way that I don't think I've ever seen anyone else do. She is giving you super high energy highs and super introspective lows and her imitation of the wizard's voice when she gets to the middle of the song. Mm. Iconic. The song fits her voice so well because um, she was on uh, Stars in the House recently where she described herself as a bottom heavy alphaba. Like her voice just like sits lower. And so the song sits on her voice really, really well. I think if you are an alphabet who is also an extraordinary actor, point blank, which Julia Murney is, Wizard and I is really your time to shine because it's mm-hmm. the most intricate of the alphabet songs because Defying Gravity, 80% of it, you're saying the same thing. And No Good Deed yeah. is like, you're operating between like three different emotions the whole time. But Wizard and I yeah. is really when you get to paint with all the colors. And so I think that Julia Murray fully takes advantage of that. And that is why I think she is a Wizard and I alpha. I agree with you, James. I think that she's a Wizard and I alpha because she has always struck me as a very cerebral alpha. Like she is an alpha to me that like leads with her brain. Yes. Whereas, like, I would say Stephanie J. Block is an alphabet that leads with her heart. Mm-hmm. And then there are alphabets that lead with their courage. <laughs> oh, look at you, Kevin. <laughs> so I would say that... Um, Eden Espinosa leads with her courage, I think. Eden Espinosa, yeah, Ooh. I would agree. You have to have courage to introduce that riff into The Wizard of Night. <laughs> well, and I think that, like, that kind of overlays into like i think brain alphabas or wizard and i alphabas heart alphabas are defying gravity alphabas and courage alphabas are no good deed alphabas yeah. i might be forcing that but i think to go back to your point about the acting is it's like the wizard and i is kind of the only of the three big songs where you can like have the audience focus on your acting because mm-hmm. defying gravity it's like look at these lights look at the people coming out from under her cape look at glinda's in yellow and everything else is green and like so <laughs> much and then with no good deed it's like the fog machine the fog machine and she's yelling from the second she comes out of the fucking floor and then like it's so wordy at the end that it's like honestly i don't know what you're saying but you sound great and so the wizard and i is really the chance to kind of be like come with me on this journey totally (laughs) it's slow you'll understand all the lyrics like yeah (laughs) i agree what do you think quincy i I hear what you're both saying. <laughs> and I I actually agree with what you're saying. However, <laughs> I would say she is a no good deed alphabet, kind of for the same reasons that you think she's a wizard in our okay. alphabet, because I think her acting shines through in no good deed in a way that a lot of alphabet's acting doesn't shine through in no good deed. I would retweet that. There's such like a desperation to her no good deed. And like an unhinged, mentally unhingedness to it. That like I truly think like she is like one of the top no good deed alphabets. Because she's an actress. Yeah, I would like that. 
that's kind of the same reason I classify Shoshana as a no good deed alphabet mm. is because she's so capable of tackling. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she has a grip of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, James, before you go, where can people find you online? Uh, where can't you find me online? No, I, uh, <laughs> that sounds worse than I meant. <laughs> you can find me online. Uh, uh, my handle is James Holland, J-A-M-E-S-H-O-L-O-D. I am on Twitter and Instagram and I, I don't do TikTok. That's a young person's game, but I, I'm <laughs> tweeting about Wicked like all the time. So every third tweet, I would say. Awesome. Thank you. This was truly such an indulgent hour that I could not be more grateful for. I had so much fun. Yeah, me too. So did I. Ugh. You've been listening to Sentimental Men. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Quincy Brown and Kevin Bianchi. Thanks to Julia DiMarzo for our thrillifying artwork. And thanks to you for tuning in. You can reach us at sentimentalmenpod at gmail.com. Or on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at sentmenpod. That's S-E-N-T-M-E-N-P-O-D. Till next time, I'm Quincy. And I'm Kevin. Like, sometimes I'm like, let the alphabets rest, you know? Like, that's... Let the alphabets rest. Another t-shirt.